Galatians 5. We are going to be picking up this morning right where David left off last week. If you remember, uh, David took us down through verse 24 of Galatians 5. And then in conclusion, he brought us back up to verse 16. It says, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. David uh, explained walking in the Spirit very simply, uh, not as a uh, five-step plan, not as a a set of principles to live by, not as a new set of rules that really work this time, or even as as a, a supernatural feeling of being led, but very simply walking by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, means walking with Jesus. When you hang out with Him, David said, He rubs off on you. And and, and when we want to change, what we do is we look into His face in in the Scriptures. We see what He's really like. We we see His his character, His perfection, His love for us. And as we walk with Him, we open our hearts to Him. We tell Him our needs, our hurts, our longings and desires. We confess our frustrations. We confess our failures. And we ask Him for things. We thank Him for things. We, we talk over with Him our plans for the day or, or for, for every area of our life. See, as we walk with Jesus, He rubs off on us. He changes us. Well, I don't know about you, but that conclusion was very encouraging for me. It, it, it orients our priorities on spending time with Him, on, on focusing on Him. And it's so simple and it's so true. But if that's all there was to it, it seems like we just go into our bedroom, lock the door, Never come out. It's just me and him. No one else is involved. Ain't nobody's business but my own. Well, you see, that is exactly where it starts. You and him. But that isn't where it ends. Look with me uh, at verse 25. That's where our passage this morning starts. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, At first, it sounds like Paul is repeating himself. He says, if we live by the Spirit, if we have this life that we have, uh, not because we earn it by our performance, not because we obey all the rules or even do better than average, but we have this life because by God's grace we're placed into Christ Jesus so that what's true of Him is true of us. And now His Spirit is our Spirit. His life is in us. His Spirit is in us, uh, meeting our deepest needs Uh, healing our deepest hurts, leading us away from the works of the flesh, from the the immorality and the lusts and the impurities, from from the bickering and the the resentment and the the looking down on people and the fighting, from from the abuse of substances and other, other destructive behaviors, pulling us toward the fruit of the Spirit, toward love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Pulling us toward intimacy with God, because that's what it's really all about. That's what our our walking in the Spirit is really all about. That's what it looks like. But what Paul is saying in verse 25 here is slightly different. See, back up in verse 16, when he says, walk in the Spirit, he uses a simple word that just means to walk. To walk in the Spirit, to walk with Him day to day. Well, down here in verse 25, he uses an entirely different word. This word means to line up with, to walk in formation with, to follow behind. David Roper was telling me 
about a trip he took to uh, Greece with a friend of his back in 1973. And they were walking by a schoolyard full of children, and, and the teacher started shouting, Stickest they! Stickest they! And all the kids ran up, got in line to go in from recess. Well, that's the exact same word that Paul is using here. What he's calling us to do is to line up with the Spirit. Follow in behind. Get in step with the Spirit. Begin to follow Him. To begin to act like Him. To treat each other on the same basis that He treats us. You see, God deals with us on the basis of grace. And if that's how He deals with us, that's how we are to begin to deal with each other. This is what Paul is describing in the next six verses. It says, verse 26, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. See, Paul starts with the negative. If we're going to line up with the Spirit, if we're going to walk with the Spirit, first of all, it means that we don't get conceited, boastful. The word literally means vainglory. It's a, it's a compound word, using the word for empty and the word for glory, sticking the two together. It's talking about somebody who is just so full of their own importance and and, and working so hard to maintain their own importance. And I'm Paul saying that is not the way we are to live. That's not the way we're to act. This comes from, 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 from thinking that we have to earn God's favor, earn God's acceptance. And if, if we're functioning that way, then we've got to convince ourselves that we're important, that we're valuable, that we're, that, that we're good. And so we have to start playing games with ourselves to build ourselves up and to toughen ourselves against reality, against the truth. You see, when we fail to look at the fact that our, our security is in Christ, our confidence it is, is in Him, we're left with insecurity. And that insecurity causes us to begin to, to treat others harshly, like Paul says here, challenging one another. We, we react out of our insecurity and we challenge each other, wanting everybody to follow our rules, to play our games, to live up to our standards. We become critical of each other in order to, to, to try to, to feel better about ourselves. And sometimes we don't do it externally, outwardly. We do it internally. And as he says here, envying each other, as the word could be translated, begrudging each other. See, we resent other people's freedoms. They don't play by our rules. They don't play our games. And we, we resent them. And we seethe internally. When we lose sight of the grace extended to us. When we lose sight of, of our own unworthiness in the face of God's tender and generous love. Then we begin to treat others critically and harshly. We begin to resent them. In our hearts, you know, and we see this in the way we deal with the community. We look around and here's all these people who won't play our Christian games. And so we challenge them or we resent them. It happens in our churches. We, we, we start treating each other competitively and critically, trying to push ourselves to the front of the pack so that maybe God will notice us. We start tearing each other down rather than building each other up. 
But I think probably the place I see it uh, most frequently is in our homes. We treat each other harshly, critically, challenging each other. And when we happen to be right in a given situation, just by chance we are the right one this time, we use our, our moral high ground to win advantage in the competition rather than humbly serving each other, building each other up. See, we should be divesting ourselves of power, trying to empower others to live healthy, good lives, rather than trying to grab all the control for ourselves. See, we as husbands, we challenge our wives because we're the man of the house. We're important. And we resent them sometimes because we're threatened by their freedom. We're threatened by the freedom that they have in Christ. We want them to be what we want them to be. And not what, what God has necessarily called them to be. We want them to play by our rules, to live up to our standards, to earn our acceptance and our favor by doing their, their wifely duties. Wives challenge their husbands for not being the, the spiritual leader that they want them to be. And they, and they, 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 they seethe with resentment and ill feelings just because of their husband's inadequacy. We, we challenge Resent our children. I see it in the way that we, that we deal with our, our, our teenage sons and daughters, our little boys and little girls. We challenge them. We resent them. We, we, you know, we're the parents here. We're the important ones. We're the parents. We set the rules. Well, right in about now, you may be saying, well, yes, I am a parent. I do set the rules. That's right, you do, and you should. That's your job. It's part of your job as a parent to, to train your children. And there is a difference between right and wrong. And we need to instruct them in that. And in the way husbands and wives treat each other, there is right and there is wrong. And in the things that, that people in this church or any church get involved in, there are some things that are wrong and things that are right that go undone. There is such a thing as right and wrong. Well, what about this grace stuff? Does this lose sight of all of this so that everything seems to be okay? Well, not at all. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as disobedience. But if our response to others' sin is to become conceited, to look down on them or to challenge them or to resent them, then we're not loving them. We're not treating them the way God treats us. You know, an awful lot of the time, our challenges, our resentment is not because somebody's actually involved in sin. They're not doing something wrong. They're just failing to meet our expectations, our, our selfish desires, our self-centered agendas. And so we withhold our love, our affection from them. We try to make them play our game by our rules. And even if, and even when, what they're doing is wrong... Again, we try to control them by withholding our love, withholding our affection. That's not the way God treats us. That's not walking in line with the Spirit. That's not following His lead. Verse 1 tells us what to do when someone is in sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... That is, you who are walking in line with the Spirit, you who are in step with the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It says, even if somebody is 
caught in sin. You who are walking in line with the Spirit, restore such a one in gentleness. The term restore is often used of a, of a surgeon who is, is cutting out a malignancy very delicately, very carefully, or, or the setting of a bone gently, even if sometimes painfully, but gently and carefully. See, the term restore means to, to set back into former condition or strength. And that's our goal. That's the goal, is to lovingly bring them back to health. Because sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin, sin hurts. And our goal in going to a brother or a sister, a child, a husband, a wife, is to bring them back to freedom from this sin. Not to, to stroke our egos, not to gain some kind of emotional or, or relational advantage over them. This is emphasized even more by the word that Paul uses for gentleness. Now the word gentleness uh, is an almost untranslatable word. It is so rich uh, and so full of meaning that there are no English words that are capable of, of carrying that weight of meaning, that treasure of meaning. So let me give you a whole bunch of English words that could be used to translate this word. And I'm going to pile them on top of each other. Don't choose from these words. Add them all together. This is what it, what it means. Gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness, meekness, non-competitiveness, non-challenging, non-aggressiveness, non-argumentativeness. See, that's how it's to be done. E- even if we have to be firm with someone, even if we have to set boundaries and, and describe uh, uh, consequences, it's still to be done gently, politely, kindly, without degrading or demeaning them, without attacking them. Because, see, that's the way God loves us. That's the way He treats us. He doesn't reject us, but at the same time, He will gently, firmly, honestly confront us with the truth. See, that's how we are to restore one who's caught up in sin. That's how we're to, uh, to approach a brother or sister in sin. That's how we're to address a spouse. That's how we are to discipline a child in gentleness and courtesy. And we do it realizing our own vulnerability. You see, we can be tempted as well. Paul says right there, says, Take heed to yourself as you too be tempted. Now, we may not be tempted by the exact same thing that our, our brother is, is caught up in, the, the one we're going to. We may not be tempted to that particular sin, but even as we're going to them, we're probably being tempted by the flesh to give in to the flesh and be, be uh, proud and feel superior, look down on them, be hypocritical or harsh. You know, the, the flesh is always waiting to take a good thing and twist it. And we have to recognize that our protection from our weakness is not our own fortitude but God's grace we cannot go pretending that we're made of a different stuff I know for a fact that all God would have to do is relax his grip just a tiny bit on me and I would fall fast and hard see we count all of us dependent on God's grace we're not made of different stuff we're all made out of the same flesh and blood 
I think it's important to realize when we're dealing with our children that when we were growing up, we probably did as bad, if not worse. And it's important to remember that our children are our mother's revenge. They are the answer to her prayers that someday we would understand what we put her through. So, you know, we are all the same stuff. We are all vulnerable. We are all dependent on God's grace. We all need help from time to time. And so Paul says, bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. You see, the law of Christ is that we love each other actively. I, I think we err on the other side. We don't challenge and, and, and envy or, or resent or begrudge so much as we just ignore We see a brother or sister walking for a cliff and we just look the other way. We see somebody struggling in the spiritual battle and losing ground and we just pay no attention to them. It's not my business. Well, it is your business. The term Paul uses there for burden means an oppressive weight. See, we are all at times overwhelmed by what life is dealing us. We're at times hurt and discouraged, hurt by what people are doing to us, uh, flattened by circumstances, and we begin to weaken. And that's when we need each other. That's when we need to come alongside each other. And and when the Calvary arrives late, and we find a, a brother or sister already defeated in battle, then we gently restore such a one. You know, it's been said that Christians are the only army that shoot their wounded. And unfortunately, sadly, it's true. We either turn on, on those that are losing in the spiritual battle, or we ignore them. We leave them on the field to die. You know, just think how you would have felt if CNN had been sending back pictures from Desert Storm. And there we saw our soldiers turning away from their, their wounded comrades on, on the field, or, or, or treating them harshly, roughly throwing them into the back of the jeep, as if they had, they, they had been some kind of disgrace. Or just coming at them and attacking them, shooting them. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. But what do we do when we see a brother or sister slipping, falling into sin? Do we turn on them and attack them? Do we treat them roughly and harshly? Or do we just walk away and ignore them? It says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. You know, when I read verse 3, talking about anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, I, I think of Barney Fife on uh, Andy of Mayberry. Because here was a guy that was working so hard to maintain the illusion of his own competence and his own importance. But he was, it, it, he was so transparent that it, it, was, it was funny to see him on this show. Unfortunately, in real life, uh, it's not so funny, it's not so harmless when we Christians work so hard to maintain the, the illusion of our own competence, our own importance, uh, uh, that, that we try to maintain, maintain the illusion that we're strong, we are tough. See, and this is exactly what keeps us from g- being gentle with each other. Keeps us from being open to having others help carry our load, pretending like we don't ever need it. Again, that is what turns us away from really being, working together, loving each other. If we think our acceptance before God and each other is based on our performance, then we've got to compete with each other. 
And we start looking for the slips, the, fa- the flaws, the weaknesses in each other because by finding those, we can feel better about ourselves. We can feel like we're moving up in the pack. But when we examine ourselves according to God's absolute standard, the illusion crumbles. See, and that's what Paul is calling us to do. He says, stop comparing with each other. But look at your own work. Look at your own load. The word he uses for load is a wagon load. See, we're to face into the, the challenges that God has given us. The, 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 uh, the load that God has placed in our lives. The assignment that we have. We have to ask ourselves, how are we doing at, at, at dealing with lust? How are we doing at reaching out to others? How are we doing at, at loving our children or our parents or our spouses? And when we start to do that and look at ourselves rather than comparing with each other, there will be areas that we find victory where we say, God is doing something. This is neat. This is great. Well, we can enjoy those times. But also we will be confronted with our own weakness, our own needs. When we look at our own work, when we look at our own load, rather than comparing to each other, rather than competing with each other, then we will be gentle with others and open to having them share our load, open about what our needs are. If we're going to walk in the Spirit together, if we're going to line up together with the Spirit, we need to do it together. Now, I I see that happening a lot around here. I think that that we do fairly well, but I think we've got to do better. We can continue to grow in this. We can continue to mature in this. The the, the error I see us falling into in in this congregation more than... than, uh, refusing to bear somebody else's burden. We just don't want people to bear our burden. We want to bear ours alone. We're happy to help them, but we're not willing to open up and to share ours. While there's still, on the other side, there's a few who expect others to rescue them and carry the whole load themselves. See, neither works. Now let me, let me explain what, how I think the balance works. Each of us has to carry their own load. You gotta pull your own wagon. You gotta deal with the realities of your life. You gotta deal with your own relationships, your own losses, your own uh, illnesses and hurts and struggles. It's between you and God. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He alone is your rock and your fortress. You have no other savior. No one else can sustain you. No one else can carry you. No no friend or spouse, no church or leader. It's got to start there. It's between you and God. But God often chooses to sustain you by using his body, his brothers, your brothers and sisters. See, so on the one hand, we can't just offload the whole load onto somebody else. We can't expect somebody else to come and rescue us. We can't expect, uh, we can't blame somebody else for not being there for us. It's between you and God. But on the other hand, we have no business refusing to let God use whatever means He sees fit, often and especially using your brothers and sisters. Reminds me of a story of a Christian who was caught in a flood. As the water started rising, he and some friends, neighbors got on the roof of their house because the waters were coming up. And he said, I'm not afraid. God's going to rescue me. 
God's going to save me. And the water still came up. And pretty soon a boat comes along. And all the neighbors got in. He says, nope, I'm staying here because God is going to save me. Waters keep rising. A few minutes later, another boat comes along. I say, come on, get in. He says, nope, God is going to save me. Waters continue to rise, standing on the very tip of his roof. And here comes a helicopter. drops him a rope. He says, no, thank you. I'm okay. God's going to save me. Water continues to rise, and he drowns. Well, he gets to heaven, and he marches into the throne, and he says, God, what happened? I thought you were going to save me. God scratches his head and says, gee, I can't figure that out myself. I sent two boats and a helicopter. (laughs) See, God is our Savior. No one else. But it, it is true that often he chooses to, to accomplish his comfort and his help using your brothers and sisters. Now let's uh, move on to my favorite verse of the passage, verse 6. It says, And let the one who is taught... Let the one who is taught the word share all, that's all good things, with the one who teaches. Now, I thought about uh, building my whole sermon around this verse because it seems to be central. Actually, it's a little bit difficult to see how this verse fits into the argument. Uh, I think it has something to do with bearing each other's burdens. I guess you guys have to uh, bear the burden of my teaching. But uh, I'd like to come back to this verse in a second because I think when we look down at verse 7 and 8 and see the general principle that Paul is applying, we'll understand uh, how this fits in. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. That's where he describes the principle that he's been applying all the way through this passage. Verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And I think these verses answer a lot of questions that have been coming up through the whole book of Galatians. All along we've been talking about grace. We've been talking about freedom. See, again, our relationship with God is not dependent on our performance, how well we do, keeping all the rules, or even being better than average at keeping all the rules. Our relationship with God is based solely on His grace. By His mercy, He has placed us into Christ Jesus. So that what's true of Christ is true of us. Therefore, He treats us like He treats Christ. He loves us like He loves Christ. He enjoys us like He enjoys Christ. Nothing we do or don't do increases or decreases His affection or His acceptance. And as a result, in Christ we are free. We are truly free. We are free from uh, from fear. We are free from guilt. We are free from condemnation. Now here's the hard part. Here's the question that keeps coming up. We are also free to sin. Now, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) You don't go to church to be told you're free to sin. But it's true. We are free to sin. Now, now what's what's to keep us from sinning more and more if if there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, there's no fear of God's anger? Well, when Paul was asked that question, 
Paul was asked the question in Romans chapter 6, should we just keep sinning because there's plenty of grace to cover it all, then we can sin all the more. And Paul goes, may Ginnito, may it never be. How absurd. How silly. Don't you know that sin destroys? Don't you know that sin enslaves? Why would I ever want to? In this passage, Paul's argument is basically, don't be fooled, don't be deceived, don't be stupid. You know, you're not pulling one over on God. You're not sneaking and getting by with something. Let me, let me illustrate, uh, make an analogy. I am in Christ, therefore I am absolutely free, and I am free indeed. Therefore, I am free to take this pin and to jam it into my eye as many times as I want to. And because I'm in Christ, God will still love me. He'll still accept me. He won't reject me. I don't have to fear His anger. But people, that's going to hurt like crazy. And it's going to bleed. It's going to ruin my shirt. And and it's probably going to go blind in in that eye, if not both eyes. And I'm going to have to learn to live the rest of my life with one eye at best. See, I am free to do that. But why on earth would I want to do that? Do I think I'm, I'm, I'm putting one over on God? I'm getting by with something? That's just pure silliness. Sin hurts. Sin kills. It destroys. It's a rip-off. And one of the things that happens as we grow up in the Lord, as we mature, He opens our eyes and we start seeing things as they really are. We start seeing sin for what it really is. And we see how destructive the flesh really is. How much it robs us of our joy and peace and intimacy and relationships. And as we see that... We face reality. See, we don't want to believe that's true. We don't want to believe that our private little sins are really hurting anything. Well, they are. We don't want to believe that just because we act selfishly with our families or with our roommates, that it's really going to have much of any consequence. It's no really big deal, but it is. It has an effect. We can't do things that are relationally destructive or spiritually damaging and not have an effect and not be affected by that. You see, as we start realizing that, as we start seeing how much sin really does hurt the people around me, how much sin really does rob me of my joy and peace and satisfaction, then we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, not some some conceptual righteousness, but real, down-to-earth, everyday righteousness, living lives that are healthy, that are spiritually alive, lives that are filled with loving people and enjoying them, delighting in them, lives that are filled with security in Christ and confidence in the Lord, His ability to use us, lives that are free from the sin that hurts those we love, that destroys this planet and everyone in it, The sin that robs us of so much joy and life and peace. If I nurse that hatred for a a parent or a co-worker, it's going to have an effect. That is seed sown. And that seed will grow and it will draw us closer to what Paul says, destruction. That when when we sow to the Spirit, we reap destruction. The word literally means deterioration, disintegration. Our lives fall apart. Our hearts fall apart. We become empty and hollow. You see, when we sow, we reap. Every time we fertilize the flesh, every time we trust God and look to Him and look into His face and and ask Him 
to change us. Ask Him to remold us, um, to, to, to affect our thinking and our behavior the way we love other people. Ask Him to provide the strength and the wisdom to do it. Then we're sowing to the Spirit and we reap life and health and encouragement. Now, this, this isn't karma. This isn't what goes around, comes around. This is facing reality. This is growing up and growing in our understanding that this is how things work. This is the way God made us. And this is the way the reality that we live in really does work. See, this is the principle that Paul has been applying all the way through this passage. The principle that you reap what you sow. He says, if we're designed to walk together with the Spirit, if we're designed to line up with Him, then to go on uh, uh, being vain and puffed up and and challenging each other and envying each other and begrudging each other is just going to wreak hurt and chaos on us. It's the same thing that he he said back in verse 15. In verse 15 he says, If you bite and devour one another, take care, you will be consumed. See, if you treat your wife critically, challenging her, well, then it's going to diminish your relationship. You're going to grow apart. You're going to wound her and hurt her. If you're challenging your husband and resenting him, you're just going to lose the joy in the relationship. If, if you're treating your children harshly or selfishly, they're going to lose their trust for you. And you're going to lose your joy, your delight, your enjoyment of them. When you sow to the flesh the, 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 the harvest... His pain, his isolation, his separation, his disintegration. See, at times it seems unfair. Because, see, a little seed is a lot smaller than a big plant. But that's the way it works. Little things grow into big things, little acts have big consequences. And the little words that we speak and the little attitudes we maintain really profoundly affect us internally profoundly affect our relationships. That's the way it works. It seems unfair at times. But that's the way it works in horticulture. And that's the way it works in spiritual things. On the other hand, like Paul was saying in verses 1 and 2, chapter 6, when we restore a brother gently, when we uh, bear one another's burdens thus fulfill the law of Christ, when we encourage and are kind, thoughtful, generous, even when we have to confront, we reap an altogether different harvest. We reap the harvest of unity, of growth in the Spirit, growth toward health. Each of us are encouraged to grow up a little more. And we reap the harvest of friendship and of fellowship. Now, these are valuable things. This is also the context for that verse, chapter, uh, verse 6 about uh, sharing good things with those who teach you. You see, when a church does that, when a church uh, treats their, their, their teachers well, when, the, when a church encourages them and doesn't isolate them, doesn't expect them to be able to function without the, the support that we need to give each other, that we all need, doesn't, doesn't fail to give them opportunities to, to bear their burdens, to share their burdens as well as bear the burdens of others. When a church treats a, a teacher like that, encouraging, affirming, then they reap the harvest of good teaching. They reap the harvest of unity. They reap the harvest of peace. This is sowing the good stuff. 
as one of the uh, paid teachers here, I can affirm that this is a very generous, a very affirming congregation. It is a delight to be ministering here. But let me encourage you to go even farther, to realize that, that you can appreciate and affirm your women's Bible study leaders, your growth group leaders, your, your uh, Sunday school teachers, the brother who comes and shares some comfort from Scripture, the, 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 the sister who comes and encourages you from the Word. Appreciate them. Thank them. Share the good things that you're learning with them. Encourage them. Realize their needs. Don't expect them to always be the strong one. Let them be weak among you. Build each other up. And as we do that, we will reap the harvest of ministry. And this church can get healthier and healthier, more like God designed it to be. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Weary. Now sometimes we do get tired. Sometimes it just seems like it's not working. We're trusting God and it's still hard. We're looking to Him and we still struggle. It still hurts. Our flesh is so strong. Our relationships are still nosediving. We, we just feel cheated and fooled. But give it time. You don't sow and reap on the same day. It does take time. And often we're still reaping yesterday's harvest. And we're planting new seed. I tell you, it's, it's a heartbreak to see people who are, are moving in the right direction, who are planting good seed. But they become discouraged and they bail out. They bail out of their marriages. They, they, they write off their kids. They withdraw from fellowship right in the midst of the process. They're sowing good seed, but they never enjoy the, the, the delight of the harvest. They never enjoy the fruit of what God's doing in their life. They never enjoy the fruit of their own hard work. They give up. They give in. Now, don't bug out before the payoff. And then verse 10 is, is Paul's conclusion. He says, verse 10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those who are of the household of faith. He says, while we've got the chance, let's do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. While we have the chance, let's sow the good stuff, the, the, the joy and the peace and the kindness and the generosity and the patience and the understanding and the gentleness. You know, why put it off? Why go on sowing the bad stuff and reaping the harvest of pain, of confusion, of isolation, of fears, of compulsions? It doesn't make sense. You know, these things aren't getting us anywhere. God still loves you. He's not going to discard you. But why keep doing that to yourself and the people you love? You know, it's time to grow up, to face reality. Don't be stupid. Don't be poking your eyes out just because you can. Let's start sowing to the Spirit and start reaping the harvest of peace in our hearts, of security in Christ, of confidence in God's ability to use us, of rich, healthy relationships, of a church that's growing and filled with the love of Christ. See, eternal life is all of these things. 
But most of all, eternal life is enjoying God. When we, re- when we, we sow to the Spirit, we reap a delight in our fellowship with Him. We reap camaraderie with the awesome God of the universe with whom we're walking in step. We reap really knowing and understanding His heart. This morning, I lay before you destruction or life. And don't be stupid. Choose life. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, even though at times we do choose life, we do want to be healthy. And we're in the midst of confusion when the selfishness is feeling so important to us. When we're feeling overwhelmed by the power of the flesh, Lord, we just admit again our weakness, our need for you. We don't have the fortitude to leave it behind. So, Lord, in choosing life, we want to choose to cling to you, to walk with you, to learn from you, to watch you, to listen to you. Lord, I just pray that you would draw our hearts to you, that we would be filled with your life, and that that life would work out and strengthen your spirit and weaken the flesh so that we might live lives that really reflect you, that really are walking in line with you. Lord, again, you have to do this. We cannot do this for for ourselves. Our hearts long for you. Thank you in your son's name. Amen.